Listener Production. I kind of want Turia Pitt to be my best friend. Don't tell her though, because she'll get all smug about it. In 2011, Turia was competing in an ultra marathon through Western Australia's Kimberley region when she was trapped in a bushfire. She suffered burns to 65% of her body. She was literally cooked. I've not had a patient with such a deep burn survive, not ever, ever. Toria defied doctors' expectations to not only survive, but to thrive. Today, she is a best-selling author, podcaster, public speaker, and mum to Huckabai and Rahiti. My name is Jamila Rizvi, host of The Weekend Briefing. The Weekend List is on its way, where Tate McGregor and I recommend what to watch, see, do, eat, and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with Turia Pitt. And before you ask, yes, she is just as funny, clever and warm as she is on television. Turia Pitt, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Now, before we get into this, I feel like I have to do a disclaimer for the audience that both you and I are having a bit of deja vu right now because I have recently recorded an episode of your new podcast. Yes. Tell us about your new podcast. Well, it's called Tarif. It is hard work. And basically I talk to people who've done something hard or have gone through something hard or who've just done a lot of bloody hard work. And all of that sounds like really heavy and dark and gritty and I think the podcast is that but at the same time there's a lot of humor and fun and joy and zest and energy and so obviously I talked to you about you know I think we chatted about a lot of different things but we talked a lot about your brain tumors or brain tumor it's just the one it just keeps coming back it's just like it's like no it's like return of the jedi (laughs) it's just it's the same one so just your recurring brain tumour singular. And we also talked about, obviously, my accident. And we talked a lot about a whole bunch of other things, but I guess I really enjoyed our chat because I felt like you understood me and I felt like I understood you as well. I walked away from that. I don't like this saying, but I'm going to use it because I don't know a better one. I felt very seen by our conversation. I felt totally seen. I had it, we were so seen and I felt like I had an ally. So that is a giant plug, everyone listening, for you to go and listen to Turia's new podcast, Turia Pitt is Hard Work. If I can come on from that, Turia, do you get sick of talking about it? Do you get sick of talking about your accident? Oh, well, can I just ask you a question? Because, you know, I am officially a podcast host. Sure. Do you get sick of talking about your brain tumour? Sometimes. Yeah. It's like it's a funny balance, right, because there are days where, like with my husband, for example, I think he's sick of talking about it, but I'm always talking about (laughs) feeling funny or something's wrong or something's painful or an illness or a funny medication. And yet if I'm on TV and it's brought up out of the blue, sometimes I do get a bit prickly. What about you? Prickly. Um, I think it depends on who's asking, right? Like I feel like if you were to ask me about the catastrophic fire, which – changed my life I wouldn't be prickly because I would know that it would be coming from a place of empathy and kindness and mutual understanding I think so I wouldn't get prickly but I think it's in the way it's asked if someone asks it in a really flippant tone as 
like the same way they would ask about the weather, I I also get a little bit prickly and defensive. And I don't think that's fair of me because, you know, I'm in the media and the main reason why I'm in the media was because I got burnt during an ultramarathon 10 years ago. So it's not really fair of me to get prickly and defensive, but if I'm being honest, yeah, I, I sometimes do. I kind of feel like it is fair because... <laughs> that was me trying to be gracious. You were very, you were so gracious, <laughs> so gracious. I feel like if you share a story, particularly a story that is something that's happened to you that is deeply traumatic... Yeah. You might choose to share it on one occasion or even two occasions or even a hundred occasions. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you have to share it on the hundred and first occasion. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I think especially when you're talking about different things, you know, about my books or about my running program or about my podcast, get me just just shamelessly plugging myself away there. It does feel a bit discombobulating when I often get asked questions about my past when I feel like it is really well known, but at the same time, maybe my story isn't as known as I think it is. And there's lots of people out there who've never heard my story before. So I think it's only natural that they'd be curious about it and want to know like what happened. So that's a really long way of saying like, yeah, it annoys me sometimes maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about your love of running and where it's come from and the kind of runner you've been through your life? So a very slow runner, slow and steady and persistent. I've never been particularly good at it. I've never gone to the bloody Olympics for running. That's what I'm trying to say. Like I've never done that. I feel like you can be good at something and not go to the Olympics, can't you? <laughs> well, not for running though because like don't you think like with running, you're either in it like that's a very Olympic, that's like the original Olympic sport. Yeah, but you run a very long way. I was good at cross country at school. That was my main thing that I was good at. I think I always liked running because for me, I think it was a sense of control over my own life. And I think particularly as an adolescent, there's a lot of things that you don't have control over. So I started really liking running when I was an adolescent. And then I used to run when I was an engineer because I found my job really stressful, which sounds ridiculous because I was like a first-year engineer, like, hello, what <laughs> what do you have to be stressed at, like little baby engineer? But I used to run as an engineer, like from the mining site back to the mining camp, and so I really enjoyed, also really enjoyed that as a way of like de-stressing after my days at work. And even back then it was probably a form of therapy, right? So if I felt shitty, stressed, anxious, annoyed, or anything in between, I know that if I go for a run, I'll come back and I'll feel better and I'll feel more in control. I'll feel like I have more energy. I feel like I'm more able to tackle the problems in my day or even the problems that I think I have don't seem to be as big of a deal after going for a big run. I think a a lot of people who are runners and who enjoy running say it's as much for their mental health as their physical health, right? It, it, It calms them gives them that Definitely, sense of, yeah. of pace and problems going away and yeah. and that kind of thing. Well, I think I'm a warrior. Yeah, right. I really overthink things and I really worry about things and I'm probably prone to being more of an anxious type. Like if I compare myself to my partner, I highly doubt that he would ever get like worried or like overthink things or like overanalyze things. He's just a really, you know, just like a really stoic, calm, kind of placid man. 
And because I'm a warrior and I overthink things and I probably overanalyze things, I find that running helps me control those tendencies. And not that they need to be controlled, but it just helps to balance me out. So I'm trying to get a picture of you when your accident happened, when running was a thing of solace. Yeah. Was it able to be a thing of solace afterwards? Did that take time to get to that place? Yes, it did because I think, you know, after recovering from burns to 65% of my body, like first priorities were like, let's make sure this lady can breathe and like let's make sure we are bandaging all her wounds and, you know, let's make sure she can stand first and let's make sure she can walk five metres. So I think to start with I really had to build back into a place of of being a fit person and I think that was one of the most frustrating things was that because I'd always been someone who was really comfortable in physical places, like comfortable at a gym, comfortable going for runs, because I was a, a fit and healthy young person, it was so frustrating for me to be like this skinny stick insect walking along in Crocs and finding that really hard and feeling really out of place when I went to a gym because I had like my compression mask on, my compression suit on. I used to make my dad come with me because I just felt so scared and embarrassed about who I was and and how I looked and what my abilities were. So that was a really hard, I guess, reckoning for me to realise that who I thought I was or who Terea was, well, I had to kind of rebuild that person again from scratch I really hated exercise at the start too because it was really painful. I would get really hot and sweaty underneath my suit and it would make me really itchy and I really didn't enjoy it at all. And, you know, when I'd read things about like exercise gives you endorphins and all of that stuff, I was like, that's not my experience at this point in time. But I also realised like the, the stronger I got physically or the fitter I got physically, again, like I was saying with running, the more in control of myself that I felt and the more I felt like to reappear the runner. Before you even reached that stage of capability though, you're in those stages of recovery where yeah. the stuff you have to do is stuff that in your past life feels so basic. And I it's so it's so frustrating. I remember that as as well. I remember standing up for the first time after yeah. surgery and just I couldn't stop vomiting and just sobbing about the fact that standing was so hard, like so hard. (laughs) What got you through that period? How do you not let it kind of get too much and feel defeated by it where you go, it's too hard, I'm not doing it anymore? I think that's a good question and I think some days I did think like that. Some days I felt like, come on, Tere, like pull yourself together, put your big girl socks on, do well at your physio session try and walk 10 metres today, you know, try and raise your arms to 90 degrees. And on those days, if I did those things, I'd feel, part of me would feel proud of myself. But there was another darker part of me that felt like I was pathetic and useless and worthless and a waste of space. And I think if I'm being honest, like some days I did have really dark days where I was just like, you know what, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. I'm not doing my physio sessions. I'm not doing anything. Like I'm just going to kind of wallow in this dark space of 
of negativity. I guess I'm just trying to be honest because I don't want to paint this picture of my recovery as in like, you know, Monday I walked two steps and then next week I was walking 10 steps and then a week after that I was running a kilometre because it really, really it wasn't like that. I think out of everything though, I was consistent with my rehab and with the steps that I was trying to take. And so days I felt good, I'd do really well at physio. Some days I felt like shit, so I wouldn't do anything. Then the next day I'd say to myself, okay, you've had like, you've done enough moping around, like this is going to be your life unless you try and do something about it. And so I'd do my physio session or I'd do an extra session at the gym. So it was kind of up and down and a couple of ups and then a couple of downs. I see an exercise physiologist because of my own health issues and he always talks about heroic consistency over heroic effort. Love him. I find that really useful. Like I'm going to do this a lot even if I don't do it very well. Yeah, and like even just showing up to things. And when people used to tell me that in my past life, I was like, what does that mean, just show up? Like you're either doing it or you're not. You can't just show up. That's one of the things I learned about what happened to me is like if you just keep showing up, even if you do really poorly and even if you do terrible and even if you don't even do what you said you were going to do, I think just that process of just showing up consistently, I really believe that over the long term you do see results, even if they might not be immediate. You just use the phrase past life, which is language I use as well. That must be so annoying for the people around us. Do you reckon? <laughs> I don't care about them. Um, do you draw a line? Do you draw a line between pre and post accident? I try not to, but I think unfortunately or fortunately or whatever, I think I just do. Because I think, oh, that's old Terea used to do this and new Terea does this. And before my accident, I did this and now I do that. So I try not to, but I think I just end up defaulting to that. And I don't know if it's helpful. I don't know. What does your psychologist say? Is it helpful? Is it? You know, I don't think I've asked that question, which is really interesting because I've asked a lot of questions, <laughs> but I don't think I've, I've asked that one. But I do. I think even if I tried not to, I still think about life as before and after, not in a really morbid, gross way, like no, after is no. bad and before is good, but no. fundamentally different. Yeah, because for me, it, it is fundamentally different. Like I'm, you know, I look different. My body's different. My capabilities are different. I don't have all my fingers. Some parts of me are the same for sure. I'm still with my partner. We've got this beautiful life. We've got beautiful kids. I'm really grateful for all of that. And I'm genuinely happy with my life but that's not to say that there's not this other person that used to be around who's no longer here. That's such a good way of expressing it. A lot of people talk about the before and after of their lives around parenthood. I think particularly women talk about it in terms of life before baby and life after baby. Yeah. Talk to me about becoming a mum and how that's changed you. I don't know. I think when I was pregnant with my first son Huckabai I was really worried about my abilities as a mum because my mum is like the most beautiful, selfless, caring, compassionate, nurturing woman and I'm just not like that. Like I'm a little (laughs) bit prickly, difficult, stubborn, a bit sassy and I was just like I'm just not like my mum and so I was really worried about if I was going to be a good mum and if I was going to be able to care for my kids and on a on a practical level 
I was also worried about how my injuries would affect my parenting because I was like, well, how will I breastfeed? Like, how will I change my baby's nappies? Like, how will I wipe his ass? How will I do those, like, fiddly little buttons on a little kid's outfit that, like, people with all their fingers find hard? Like, so how, how will I be able to do that? So I think I was worried on a lot of different levels. But I guess, like all parents, I think you just learn on the go and you adapt. I enjoyed the baby stage of my second son more because I wasn't second guessing myself as much. But I think most parents would say that, yeah, with like mm. their second kids, they would probably say, I mean, I don't know, but I think they'd probably say like they knew what they were doing. Yeah. And I think that comparison with your own mum is a really interesting one, right? Because I think to an extent when you become a parent, your first point of reference is the people who raised you for good or for worse, right? You either look back and go, hey, I want to do it like that or, hey, I really don't want to do that. Yeah. Or the experience that you had, and I've got to say, I I think I felt quite similarly in that I had an amazing mum. We are really different people. And there was no way I was going to be a mother the way she was. Like little things, like I remember when we were kids, she would play so many of those make-believe games with us for hours and hours. Like, that's really boring. So I'm not very good at that as a mother. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to watch it, but I, yeah. the doing, I still feel really self-conscious and silly. So I, I can't, I'm just not that kind of parent. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's taken a few years to realise that being a good parent can mean doing it your own way rather than having to live up to the version that you had when you were a kid. But I think just becoming a parent as well, and I feel like becoming a mum in particular, I think you just feel guilty a lot. Even like if I'm working, I feel guilty that I'm not with my kids. But I think if you're a mum and you're working, like not only do you have to be a good mum, but you also better be doing a good job at work too. So it's almost like we've got these two roles that we need to play. Yeah, Annabelle Crabb writes about this and she says that women – are expected to mother as if they don't have a job and work as if they don't have kids. Yeah, like that's impossible unless you just keep chipping away at yourself and your sleep and your energy levels and all of that stuff. Who supports you? Tell me about your beautiful partner and tell me about how your parenting works together. Michael for me has always been my rock. You know, he's a very strong, solid, reliable, dependable person. Honestly, before my accident, I never really appreciated Michael's qualities, which sounds stupid because like I was, I was with the guy, I loved him. The reason I was with him is because he had these other qualities, like he was adventurous, he was handsome, he was kind. So those were the qualities that drew us together. But I think after what happened to me, I saw all of these other really beautiful qualities in him that I had never, never even noticed before. And so I think, you know, when people ask me, like, what am I most proud of? I think it's my relationship with my partner because I think we've navigated something really hard that you wouldn't wish on anyone and we've managed to create a really great life for ourselves and we're raising 
a really beautiful family as well. So I think, yeah, he'd be what I'm most proud of. I mean, that wasn't the original question though, was it? No, but it's still a good answer, so that's all right. I read that when I was researching you and our wonderful producer Tate was helping out that you were never a comfortable public speaker. No, I hated it. And I have seen you speak on stage before we'd ever met in person and you are... Were you impressed? You are captivating. (laughs) I was so impressed. I remember thinking, I don't really want to go next at a particular (laughs) conference that we were both speaking at. So tell me about how you overcame that that fear of public speaking to not just be able to do it but to be able to do it well honestly it's like anything it's just practice right and I felt like after my accident I got made redundant for my job as an engineer and so I was like great now what do I do I'm 24 and I live with my in-laws and I've got like zero career prospects and so I just thought okay I'm gonna be like a motivational speaker and a company contacted me and I was like, yeah, I'll do a speech. I went there. I got up on stage. I felt so anxious and scared and nervous. I think I spoke for like seven minutes. And, you know, when you're up on stage and all the eyes are on you and you just start to feel really sick. And so then I ran off my stage and my dad was with me at the time. And as we were driving home, I was like, Dad, what did you think of that? And he was like, Taria, honestly, that was awful. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> He was like, that was terrible. And I was like, oh, okay. Thanks, Dad. And he was like, okay, Googs, if that's my nickname, Googs, he's like, if you want to do this as a career, you're going to need to get help because that was, that was awkward and terrible and horrible. That was awful. And I was like, yep, I got it, Dad. You said that now like six times. So (laughs) I I totally, totally get it. So I got, I got a speaking coach like maybe in 2013 who helped me like, be more comfortable on the stage and like own my presence and all of that. And I think from then it's just been a lot of practice, but I still get nervous before every speech. And every time before I speak, I just think this is why I hate, I don't, I don't want to speak because I just feel so sick and nervous and anxious and flustered before I get up. But I also think that maybe those feelings are, are good things because I think if I was just really blase, I was just like, oh, I don't care, it's just a speech then maybe that speech wouldn't be as good. Yeah, I think being nervous comes from caring, right, and wanting to do a good job and being anxious that maybe you won't do a good job. Yeah, exactly. And just thinking things like I don't know if they'll find my jokes funny or like I don't really know this bit of the speech that well and just, I guess, practical things like that. I've been doing it now for like eight years or whatever. I still get really nervous and scared. But then afterwards I feel like I am on a high. Like I've done it, you know, and especially if I get a good response in the audience and you can probably relate to this too, but I feel really good about myself. Yeah, there, that is a magic feeling. I've got, I've got to, if I'm honest, it's not a feeling I've had very often lately because I have virtual? stopped. Well, oh, part, stopped partly it. virtual. Yeah. I've stopped doing a lot of public speaking and I don't do a lot of television anymore, mostly because since I've been unwell, I look quite different and I am very uncomfortable about it. And when you say you look different, like, what do you mean? Because you, I, I guess I don't know that you real life before. Yeah. But you just look, if I look at photos of you from before, I feel like you look the same. That is very generous. Um, no, but what do you like? Part of it's probably a personal perception, right? Right, um, okay. Uh, but, I, I mean, I have a new nose because I had a. I mean, I'm quite jealous. It's, um, it's, 
the best thing about my nose, which is a good fun fact, is it is solid. It doesn't move because it's a, it's a, it's a bone. It's not cartilage because my nose was so damaged that they, um, they replaced it with my rib instead of with cartilage. <gasps> Ooh, spooky. Amazing. Um, okay, I didn't know that. But I think my nose looks different. My hair's grown differently around surgery scars and I have a condition which means my body doesn't metabolise properly. So I am physically a lot bigger than I used to be. Now those are minor things compared to what you've gone through. How did you get used to being in the public eye and search that role as a motivational speaker, being on television, writing books? Yeah. How did you come to terms with not looking like you used to? Because that's a big shift. I think for me, maybe the way it was almost easier than for you because I wasn't, no one knew who I was before my accident. No one knew what I looked like. No, like that, you know, in those days we didn't have Instagram and people weren't even taking videos on their phone. So there's very little like historical footage or like historical photos of me. So I think in a way that I guess that might have made it easier. You make it sound like you're 100 years old. There's there's very little archival footage of me. It's black and white, what does exist. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know why I do that. I'm sorry. I was trying to sound serious. Sorry. It's like pre-Facebook, right? Yeah, okay. So in the olden days, pre-social media, the reason I did 60 Minutes to start with, I felt like it would make me go harder in my recovery like I felt like if everyone in Australia knew about my story and knew about what had happened to me it would fuel my fire and my desire to want to rehabilitate myself wow and I also think because after my accident I read you know I know they say like don't read newspaper articles about yourself but like obviously I I, everyone reads them I feel like everyone reads them. And so, like, I, you know, I, I looked at what was written about me and I, I really hated it because it was, like, ex-model burns victim. I found that really annoying because they were writing my own story for me without me having any input or any any say in it. So I think that's all of those reasons for why I wanted to do 60 Minutes. And I, I guess I wanted to show Australia who I was, that I wasn't just a Burns victim, that I was a person, that I had a great sense of humour, that I was funny and articulate and I was smart and I was gung-ho. And I, I think I wanted to demonstrate those things to, yeah, to Australians. Well, you sure bloody have. It has been a delight talking to you. I could talk to you for hours longer. Toria, thank you for being on The Weekend Briefing and good luck with your new podcast. Thanks for talking to me. That's all we've got time for with Toria Pitt. You can find her podcast, Toria Pitt is Hard Work, on the listener app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't go away. The Weekend List with Tate McGregor is coming up next. Welcome, Tate McGregor. It is time for The Weekend List and we know that so many of you are in lockdown. We know that so many of you wish you could be out and about and doing the stuff that you love this weekend and instead you are stuck at home. 
stuck inside. So we will try and make it just a little bit more bearable for you. I want to start by recommending Ted Lasso, which is on Apple TV. It follows an American guy who has moved to the United Kingdom to coach a football team there. He's previously coached Gridiron, but he's trying his hand at football. Really simple premise, but absolutely wonderful, heartwarming, life-affirming, happy television. There is something about the Ted Lasso character who is just so damn likeable and you root for him from the very first minutes of the program. And the other characters are more of a mix. You've got the villainous ones, the bitchy ones, the cruel ones, but over time you come to realise and see the good in all of them. Sounds a bit Pollyanna, but it's actually awesome. Like it or not, Richmond are changing the way we do things. And from now on, that way is the lasso way. What you're doing is irresponsible. This club actually means something to this town. You don't think I see that every day out there on the street? Our briefing's very own Jan Fran is in a brand new quiz panel show that premiered this week with another guest from our show jam, Will Anderson. So it's a show for anyone who's ever been lied to by the media Question Everything dissects the real from the rumours and flattens conspiracies with a rotating panel of comedians and, I quote, aims to give facts their swagger back. So you can catch Question Everything every Wednesday at 8.30pm on ABC TV and ABC iView. Someone else who can taste when something is wrong is my co-host, Jan Fran. Thank you. Thank you, Will. Yes, I will be your fact checker and truth arbiter this evening, giving you all the facts, unless I don't know, in which case, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Okay, so my next recommendation is born for lockdown. It was made for lockdown, in fact. So the Yarra Valley Chocolatery and Ice Creamery, yes, I know such a place exists, is currently having its hot chocolate festival, which is an annual event. And they have designed 31 new, delicious and unique flavours for all of us to enjoy. Now, if you happen to be in the Yarra Valley, good luck to you because it means you can actually go and enjoy it in person. For the rest of us, however, you can actually order online. A bunch of their products can be ordered online. They will come to your home. You get like eight little hot chocolates that are all special and you make them in your own home. You just got to add milk and they come with fancy marshmallows and all these different types and everything looks completely delicious. I think there's only two weeks left of the festival. It runs for four weeks, but there's only two weeks left. So you've got two weeks to get your hot chocolate sent to your home. Yum. All right. Well, while you're drinking your hot chocolate and watching Jan Fran's new show, you're going to be also soundtracked to Five Seconds of Summer frontman Luke Hemming's new album. So he's gone solo from the band. In case you don't know Five Sauce, they're an Aussie boy band who made it big when they opened for One Direction back in the day. They're more of a pop vibe, internationally renowned, uh, just a huge deal. Well, he's followed in the footsteps of Harry Styles and launched his own solo project and he's recently put out his debut album it's called when facing the things we turn away from and it's a real rocky pop vibe with some psychedelic influence so think if 
Tame Impala shook hands with Kings of Leon. That's the vibe I'm giving you. Some really beautiful live instrumentation. And I think it's just a really strong debut from Luke. I'm not a massive Five Seconds of Summer fan, but I'm a big fan of this. So make sure you tune in to When Facing the Things We Turn Away From by Luke Hemmings. That's all we've got time for today on The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for giving us your company. If you'd like to make sure that you never miss an episode, then the best thing to do is to follow us in the listener app or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not leave us a sneaky rating and a review, like a good one, please, and it will help other people find The Briefing and The Weekend Briefing. We will be back on Monday morning, bright and early, with Tom and Annika, who will have the latest news straight to your headphones from 6am. Listener.